Hello, my name is Jean Ho, and I'm an assistant professor at the Faculty of Law of the National University of Singapore. The topic of my lecture today is state responsibility for breaches of investment contracts. One of the most common ways for foreign investment to enter the territory of a host state is through a contract. But what happens when a state breaches a contract that it has concluded with a foreign investor? Does this engage the state's responsibility under international law? In this short lecture, I will walk you through the creation of a law of state responsibility for breaches of investment contracts. I will start with how investment contract claims were handled in the past, continue with how such claims are often resolved in the present, and conclude with my views on how past and present forces articulate international sanction for contractual breaches. We begin in the era of diplomatic protection. Up until the early 1900s, foreign investors were unaccustomed to presenting their contract claims directly to host states. Instead, what they did was approach their home states and request their home states to present these claims on their behalf. Home states are under no obligation to present any claim submitted by its national to the relevant host state. Whether an investment contract claim is eventually presented to the relevant host state lies at the sole discretion of the investor's home state. There are no rules governing how such discretion should be exercised. When the home state decides to present its national's claim to the relevant host state, this act is also known as diplomatic protection in the broad sense. Frederick Mann was absolutely right to observe that the accord of diplomatic protection in the context of contract claims hardly lent itself to the rigor of legal principles. And even when home states decide to extend diplomatic protection to its national's contract claim, the nature of protection varies from claim to claim. In some instances, the home state sent one or two polite written requests to the host state to satisfy its national's claim. In other instances, the home state threatened the host state with force if its national's claim was not met. It should therefore come as no surprise that some investment contract claims went unanswered by the host state, while others were promptly met. Although home states were rarely on the same page on why and how investment contract claims should be pressed, they did seem to agree that such claims should be regarded as simple monetary debts to be collected on behalf of their nationals. 
they did not view these claims as opportunities for alleging that the host state had committed a violation of international law. There are notable exceptions to this tendency, and they come in the form of home states who have commenced international proceedings against host states on behalf of their nationals with contract claims. In this regard, the home states are Switzerland in the Losinger case before the Permanent Court of International Justice, Greece in the Amatelos case before the International Court of Justice, and finally, the United Kingdom in the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company case also before the International Court of Justice. With the conclusion and coming into force of investment treaties, the era of diplomatic protection of investment contract claims gradually gave way to the era of investment treaty protection of such claims. Investment treaties promise the reciprocal promotion and protection of foreign investment between the contracting states. They accomplish two things. One, they set out the obligations that host states should abide by in their treatment of qualifying foreign investment. And two, they empower foreign investors to submit claims in arbitration directly against the host state. State conduct that incurs international responsibility under investment treaties must be conduct that violates an investment treaty obligation. This calls for foreign investors pressing contract claims against host states to characterize a breach of contract by the host state as a breach of treaty. There are three types of clauses in investment treaties that are frequently invoked by foreign investors pressing contract claims against host states. They are umbrella clauses, fair and equitable treatment clauses, and finally, expropriation clauses. Umbrella clauses typically oblige a host state to observe any commitment that it has entered into with respect to a protected investor or a protected investment. Umbrella clauses come across as very open-ended clauses, and indeed, a considerable number of foreign investors have capitalized on the open-endedness of umbrella clauses to argue that since a host state endeavors to observe any commitment, then surely contractual commitments owed by the host state to the investor fall within the mix. This argument has the effect of elevating every contractual obligation owed by the host state into a treaty or international obligation. Normally, when a host state breaches a contractual obligation, this breach is governed by the proper law of the contract, which more often than not is national law. So a state may incur liability under national law for a breach of contract.
But with umbrella clauses, the liability of a state is not limited to liability under national law. The state may also incur responsibility under international law for breaching a contract. The conversion of contractual obligations into treaty or international obligations is also known as internationalization. Internationalization runs counter to the generally accepted position in international law that a breach of contract by a state in and of itself does not amount to a violation of international law. This may explain why the vast majority of arbitral tribunals hearing umbrella clause claims are reluctant to regard umbrella clauses as tools of internationalization. States are also increasingly wary of open-ended umbrella clauses that lend themselves to expansive interpretations. Umbrella clauses are absent from many newer generation investment treaties. And when they are present, they're usually couched in qualifying language. This is so that the foreign investor cannot rely on the presence of an umbrella clause in an applicable investment treaty to argue that the contractual obligations owed by the state are somehow transformed into treaty or international obligations. Fair and equitable treatment is rarely defined in investment treaties. So, like umbrella clauses, fair and equitable treatment clauses come across as very open-ended clauses. Over time, though, arbitral tribunals have tried to tease out the components of fair and equitable treatment. And today, we accept that state conduct, which is fair and equitable, should be conduct that is transparent, non-arbitrary, and not manifestly lacking in propriety. These components of fair and equitable treatment can be subsumed under the international minimum standard of treatment of aliens. So should a state breach a contract in a manner that falls short of the international minimum standard, then this conduct will also violate the obligation to provide fair and equitable treatment under the applicable investment treaty. Expropriation clauses set out the conditions for a lawful taking of foreign investment by the host state. In order for taking to be lawful, it has to be made in pursuit of a public purpose, in compliance with due process requirements, such as non-discrimination, and upon payment of prompt, adequate, and effective compensation. Investment treaty conditions for a lawful taking mirror the customary international law on the taking of alien property by host states. Many investment treaties contain an asset-based definition of a protected investment. So a protected investment can range from physical property to stocks and shares in a company 
to rights arising from a contract. So long as an investment contract or rights arising from it are recognized as a species of protected investment under the applicable investment treaty, then a breach of contract by the whole state that substantially deprives the foreign investor of its contractual rights or of the benefit of the contract can amount to a compensable expropriation. So how do the past and the present add up to a law of state responsibility for breaches of investment contracts? The diplomatic practice of states is the foundation of virtually all branches of the law of state responsibility. And yet, the aggregate practice of states during the era of diplomatic protection of investment contract claims did not generate any common rules governing the legal consequences of states breaching investment contracts. This created a void which over time was gradually filled by the growing repository of investor state arbitral awards. Some question the prominence or propriety of arbitral awards as a source of international law. But in this particular branch of state responsibility, there is no denying that arbitral awards are indeed an important source of international law. So what do these awards tell us? They tell us first that there is great resistance to internationalization. This branch of the law of state responsibility has not recognized and is unlikely to ever recognize that a breach of contract by a state per se will amount to a violation of international law. They tell us secondly that this branch of the law of state responsibility is a derivative and not an innovative law. It is firmly anchored to the customary international law on the treatment of aliens and of the protection of alien property. And this anchor will continue to be significant as the law of state responsibility for breaches of investment contracts continues to develop. Thank you.